Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you enjoy Jerusalem Unplugged, you may also like to listen to Stories from Palestine podcast. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands. I am married to a Palestinian and I live in Beit Safafa between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I studied history and tour guiding and I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. You can find it on your favorite podcast player or go to the website storiesfrompalestine.info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Dr. Itamar Radai. Itamar is Senior Lecturer in Israel Studies at the Open University of Israel, and is mostly working on the, British, on the history of British Mandatory Palestine, with a, with a focus on the crucial period of 1947-1948, but he also uh, has been developing new projects, which we will discuss throughout the interview. In 2016, he published a seminal and very important work. The book was published by Routledge, Palestinians in Jerusalem and Jaffa, 1948, A Tale of Two Seeds. Of course, he published a number of articles discussing uh, uh, the question of the uh, decline of the Arab middle class in the same period of time in a number of chapters. But first of all, Itamar, welcome. Thank you very much, Roberto. I am glad to be here. Now, Itamar, the first question I have is very much about your work on uh, what Jerusalem and Jaffa in this case. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little about yourself and how you began to work on this very controversial period of time in the history of Israel-Palestine in 1947-1948, and also why on Jerusalem and Jaffa? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, these are uh, really uh, difficult questions, I have to say. Uh, I am a native of Jerusalem. I was born in Jerusalem. Uh, 
My parents uh, immigrated uh, to Israel from uh, Romania uh, several years before I was born. My, my family uh, has uh, both Romanian and uh, Hungarian ancestry. So our ancestry is uh, Eastern European. Uh, no family connection uh, to the Middle East. Uh, my wife has uh, a partially Middle Eastern ancestry, but uh, I have no Middle Eastern roots in my family before marriage, I mean. So I grew up in Jerusalem, in West Jerusalem, which is an Israeli Jewish city. And uh, I was not exposed much to Arab and Palestinian culture and language until I was 17 and a half. At 17 and a half, uh, I um, had an opportunity to go to a place called the uh, Givat Chaviva, a seminar of uh, the Shomer Atzair, a movement uh, of Kibbutzim, which is also a place of uh, joint, or used to be a place of joint cooperation between Jews and Arabs in Israel. And I went there for eight months to study Arabic and uh, also some Middle Eastern studies. So it was, it was my first uh, uh, opportunity to get in touch with the subject. And uh, later on, when I uh, landed uh, on university, uh, I took a BA uh, with uh, majors in uh, Islamic and Middle Eastern studies and uh, history. Uh, so it was uh, quite obvious uh, since I had uh, already the knowledge uh, in Arabic language and the initial uh, knowledge of uh, Middle Eastern history that uh, I chose uh, these uh, subjects and uh, these courses. And then later, when uh, I started my graduate studies, uh, I didn't know at the beginning uh, which, uh, which field I'm going to, to choose, but uh, uh, when it... Uh, became uh, clearer that my path would lead me uh, towards uh, modern history. Then again, uh, the, uh, my knowledge in uh, Arabic uh, have led me uh, towards uh, archival research uh, in Arabic documents, which in Israel is possible mainly um, in the Israeli archives uh, uh, through the reading of um, Palestinian Arab documents uh, that were confiscated uh, mainly in the 1948, uh, during the 1948 war. I might say that actually it was the, the desire to conduct archival research that uh, uh, brought me mainly uh, to this field um, as a scholar. And uh, it also, uh, might say, directed me to write my uh, PhD dissertation at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Uh, on uh, the history of the Palestinians in Jerusalem and in Jaffa in 1948. I want to start the conversation about your book, something, asking something about uh, Jerusalem. Now, with a previous guest of the podcast, we often discuss Jerusalem in the ancient past, throughout uh, the Ottoman era. We also discussed 1967, contemporary Jerusalem. But actually, this is the first time we focus on this crucial period of uh, so to the end of the British mandate. So I was wondering if you can just tell us a little bit how Jerusalem looked like in 1947, 1948, so before and at the beginning of the war. So Jerusalem looked uh, quite uh, different than uh, the city that uh, people who uh, grew up in Jerusalem in the post-1967 Jerusalem, like myself, I was born in 1972. Uh, Jerusalem of uh, pre, uh, the pre-1948 Jerusalem was uh, quite different. In 1947, Jerusalem had uh, 165,000 uh, inhabitants. 
uh, out of which about 100,000 Jews, uh, about 30,000 uh, Christians and 35,000 Muslims. So if you look upon actually the uh, Palestinian or the Palestinian Arab communities of Jerusalem, uh, we see, and it's also very different than the communities that we know now, uh, Palestinian Jerusalem, Jerusalemites today, we can see that the community was divided almost uh, half and half between Muslims and Christians. So in this way, it was uh, um, much more, uh, much more diverse, much more cosmopolitan community, and it included not only people of uh, Arab descent, it included also thousands of Greeks, thousands of Armenians, uh, Russians, Bulgarians, um, up until the Second World War, uh, of course, Germans, and uh, British uh, officials uh, and the uh, police and the army officers and their families. So all these together combined also with Jewish communities of various backgrounds, like uh, the German Jews, for example, made up for a really a rich and diverse fabric of life in a cosmopolitan Jerusalem. Um, I would say perhaps, uh, a Jerusalem that was also a junction of cultures between East and West. I was curious about uh, something uh, again related to Jerusalem in particular, and then later on I want to just to you know touch about touch upon uh, Jaffa briefly. How hard is to discuss Jerusalem, the events that surrounded the city between forty-seven and forty-eight? How hard is to talk about uh, these events today? My feeling is that every time you know you, you try to uh, engage in a discussion about what happened in Jerusalem during the war, everything becomes political, and so it's either going one way or another, or actually people some sort of uh, stay away from that because it's some sort of a dangerous ground. So I was wondering, you delved into that, and I was wondering how difficult it was for you to to actually engage, you know, in a topic like this. Of course, it is very difficult. I mean, if I would have known in uh, in the beginning, uh, but I was maybe more naive when I started uh, to delve into this these uh, topics more than 20 years ago. Uh, I started actually my uh, uh, graduate studies. Um, personally, I think that for a long time I felt uh, more detached uh, because uh, my family didn't live in Jerusalem in 1948. Uh, my parents arrived uh, in Jerusalem as uh, new immigrants in the 1960s. They came to the Hebrew University that was at the time uh, the only main university in Israel. And uh, I think that at the time that my uh, parents arrived in Israel, uh, they were very naive and uh, ignorant of uh, the history of the uh, the Arab-Israeli or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict at the time. Uh, it was also, you know, pre-1967 Israel. And uh, I grew up in post-1967 uh, Jerusalem, um, which might also was kind of uh, West Jerusalem, in a way was a kind of uh, a bubble. Uh, even though, you know, in my childhood, uh, for example, uh, I grew up until uh, age four in, uh, in the, the very center of uh, West Jerusalem and uh, 
uh, one of uh, my first memories uh, as a child at age three uh, was an explosion just underneath our home, which actually uh, we might say have shaken my world in all uh, by all means. So we were aware of the existence of, uh, we had an awareness of the existence of the conflict and the political considerations, but it was not a part of daily life with the, you know, with the exception, some exceptions that they came in to infiltrate our, into our daily routine sometimes. sometimes. And uh, when I started actually, as I told you, I was really uh, doing this from a, a, a total academic uh, feeling of uh, research and feeling of detachment from the reality. However, uh, the longer and longer you delve into it, uh, and you read, and you study, and you cannot ignore the uh, repercussions that uh, the history has also on, on the present, uh, both in Jerusalem and in Israel and in Palestine, Palestinian territories as a whole. So, um, Yes, you find yourself at some certain point asking, why didn't I study uh, the history of, uh, let's say, uh, Italy in the Middle Ages? It would have been so politically, uh, so more convenient, and nobody would have uh, ever argued my political motives and inclinations so far. On the other hand, you say, you know, someone has, someone has got to do it too. So someone got to do this uh, uh, historical study as well. And uh, as a historian, uh, I believe that uh, we historians boldly go and no one has gone, uh, or well, only few people have gone before us, uh, regardless of uh, the, uh, what I might say, the collapse implications. Don't you think so? I, I would agree with you that it would be much, much easier to just work on uh... I don't know, Roman history, where obviously there are debates amongst archaeologists and historians about the interpretation of certain events, but they're not controversial to the point that they're affecting contemporary lives. Even though, even that, there are issues because, uh, uh, again, sometimes in the, in the contemporary political spectrum, you have parties, you know, comparing the uh, barbaric invasion, which actually never happened, by the way. I mean, at least historians always tell us they didn't happen but they use the term barbaric invasion then to look at the migrants coming into Europe, like the same. But other than that, really, you're right. Uh, it's much, much different. And, and I want to, I really want to bring you to a, a number of these very controversial events that you discuss in the book, but, and they're part of the history of Jerusalem during the war. Events like Deryasin, the Adassa convoy. And so that brings me to the question of, uh, how did Jerusalem experience the war? Was it a front city? Was it at the margins? How did the sides, and more importantly, the side that you looked at, sort of looked at Jerusalem and uh, sort of what were the, uh, I would say the lines that they drew in order to say, okay, we want the city and uh, this is what we're gonna do in order to get the city, but we can't go beyond that. Well, uh, Jerusalem was, of course, in the heart, in the epicenter of uh, the 1948 war, which is well known according to uh, the uh, partition resolution uh, accepted by the UN uh, in 1947. It should have been a corpus separatum, a separated area under international government, but 
this never materialized and uh, from uh, an early stage uh, Jerusalem began uh, to be the theater of uh, fighting uh, at first between uh, Jews and uh, Palestinian Arabs and uh, then uh, between uh, Israelis and Jordanians uh, uh, for several months. So it has been actually a formative event, not only in the history of Israel and in the history of Palestine, but also in the history of Jerusalem. Uh, the war was a formative event, it tore apart Jerusalem, and it actually drew again the map of Jerusalem, and it was even a more formative event than the 1967 war, uh, because uh, the um, separation between West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem as political concepts and uh, rather than geographical concepts uh, actually uh, started uh, in 1948 uh, in a part even during the war and uh, mostly following the consequences uh, of the war and uh, the armistice agreement with uh, Jordan that um, actually uh, partitioned the, the city into two parts, uh, the Jordanian Jerusalem and Israeli. Uh, Jerusalem and it uh, totally drew again the map in a way that uh, people who currently live in the city, uh, I think that uh, mainly Jewish Israelis, but also Palestinians sometimes uh, are having try difficulties to figure out the, uh, the extent of uh, the changes that uh, have gone through, especially in what became West Jerusalem, where uh, an entire uh, Palestinian uh, community or communities uh, were actually uh, uprooted from their homes, uh, which became uh, Jewish-Israeli neighborhoods until this day. And uh, also um, in the old city of Jerusalem, where the uh, historical uh, Jewish quarter was also uprooted uh, and uh, until 1967 also uh, was, um, became a Palestinian-Arab neighborhood, uh, only to be uh, reinstituted following 1967 as a Jewish neighborhood, but as a very totally different way than uh, historically, actually totally uh, different so story than the historical Jewish quarter that existed up until 1948. To a lesser extent, also in places like uh, even uh, Sheikh Jarrah, which persisted as a Palestinian neighborhood following 1948, uh, however, a small Jewish enclaves uh, such as uh, Shimon Tzadik uh, that existed in the neighborhood up until then were also uprooted only to pop up as major political problems uh, later on, which culminated uh, actually uh, only in recent years, uh, while we still see here the repercussions of the uh, events of 1948. I'm curious about something. In your book, you talk about uh the collapse of the Palestinian leadership. And you, you actually, you start the, uh, the chapter uh, talking about Katamon, which was a very important neighborhood of, of Jerusalem, mostly a Palestinian neighborhood with obviously different ethnicities, also Greeks live there. Uh, and nowadays obviously is a part of uh, West Jerusalem at large, I would say. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, what happened to that neighborhood then starting from there, what happened to the Palestinian leadership? Because again, later on, you're talking about Jerusalem resists. So it feels like there's a sort of a dichotomy. There is a, you know, one group of Palestinians leaving, but at the same time, there is a resistant movement that is trying to fight back against Israeli forces. Let's start from, uh, from the Palestinian leadership. 
Okay, so I think that uh, we should actually distinguish here between the Palestinian leadership and the Palestinian uh, political leadership in 1948 and the Palestinian society, especially when we discuss uh, places like the Katamon neighborhood. We discuss uh, more, engage more in what happened to the Palestinian society in these neighborhoods, uh, also uh, in places in Jaffa. And uh, yes, I termed this social collapse. I think it was not uh, an easy motion to do as a historian and as an Israeli historian. Uh, and I'm aware of uh, it's quite controversial. And uh, I'm aware also of the criticism that uh, Palestinian scholars have or might have towards it. Uh, however, I still remember also the call by Rashid Khalebi uh, in his uh, seminal uh, article regarding uh, the Palestinians in 1948, study also the internal reasons uh, for Palestinian debacle in the war. And I think that uh, we as historians, regardless of uh, our national identity, be it Israelis or Palestinians or Americans or uh, any other national community in the world, could not actually uh, avoid this question. Uh, being, of course, aware to our political uh, and ethnic identities. And yes, I think that uh, uh, what happened in the since uh, beginning in late 1947 and the first months of 1948 in uh, both uh, um, Palestinian Arab neighborhoods in southwest Jerusalem, such as Katamon, Baqa, Talbir, and also in uh, Jaffa, also in areas that I studied less, uh, such as uh, Haifa, mainly in the larger cities. I think that. Um, Yes, those areas areas experienced a social collapse of the, the Palestinian civilian population, which of course was under military pressure exerted by the Jewish side at the time. Yet, as historians who read Palestinian history, Palestinian documents, Palestinian memoirs, which are especially important, uh, diaries, which are uh, especially important in the case of Katamon, uh, we cannot ignore actually the uh, social impacts of what happened in Katamon. Uh, of course, it's, it's obvious that uh, the uh, Palestinian society would not have collapsed uh, without uh, the military pressure of the Jews that became uh, soon later the Israelis. But all in all, uh, Palestinian, uh, Palestinian internal characteristics uh, such as uh, estrangement between middle-class members, uh, in, uh, especially in uh, New Jerusalem, in the newer quarter of Jerusalem, and also in many quarters of Jaffa, actually facilitated the way towards uh, the Palestinian defeat and the Jewish victory in uh, 1948. We tend to uh, view the Jewish Israelis as superior military and political power in the Middle East compared to Palestinians and compared, even compared to other uh, Arab uh, states in the area. But um, the process that has led to this uh, military and political superiority uh, was not uh, a definite and deterministic uh, process. Uh, and, uh, this uh, superiority in terms of uh, military power and even political power 
did not come to exist uh, until the later phases of the 1948 war, actually started to materialize in the year, months, uh, April, May, 1948. Uh, so I think that in this regard, uh, the study of uh, the um, internal structure and the internal events within the Palestinian society in places such as Katamun has a great relevance uh, to us as historians, perhaps even not only to study about or to understand what happened to the Palestinians in 1948, in the Nakba, which is uh, of course uh, crucial, but also to understand better the life of the Palestinians as a whole under the mandate and even before. I believe uh, that uh, you made a very controversial point indeed about the question of a collapse of a Palestinian political leadership. But it's also true, as you mentioned, Rashid Khalidi some time ago invited uh, scholars and we've seen a number of scholars coming out and investigating this matter. And more and more it's becoming clear that uh, there's a dichotomy where obviously you had uh, individuals where just wanted to resist, uh, but you also had uh, uh, other individuals that just folded and were not able to, uh, I would say, develop, uh, I would say like roll out their political power and to come together, but instead they just made personal choices. And again, you're right. I mean, obviously there is a military pressure and um, probably also the idea that uh, the war was going to be short and there would be some sort of a resolution at the end which obviously didn't happen. So you have two different results here, one on the Zionist side, which was more to conquer in a sense, and the other one probably more about, uh, you know, finding a solution to the conflict and uh, move uh, move on, move forward out of that. But it, it, again, it's hard to say because eventually event, uh, events unfolded in one direction and not others. Uh, but I'm, I'm interested about the question of, of resistance because, again, Jerusalem was at the very center of the conflict and it didn't uh, fall quite quickly. But uh, we saw different parties fighting and eventually we'd say the most historical part of the city remained with the Palestinians. And Jerusalem, you know, many would maybe not know much about the events of the war, but certainly they would remember that between 1948 and 67, the city was divided and, you know, the, the iconic image of a Mandibal gate uh, uh, with the fences and so forth. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the resistance um, of Jerusalem. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Yes, uh, this is uh, indeed a uh, highly interesting question because uh, the uh, common uh, historical narrative, not, uh, not talking now about popular or political narrative, the common historical narrative was that the uh, Uh, the Palestinians have shown uh, little resistance in uh, 1948. And then uh, Jordanians were superior military power to the Palestinians, uh, better organized, better equipped, uh, trained by uh, the British, uh, even uh, led by British officers, uh, came in into Jerusalem. And this is why the fate of uh, East Jerusalem was different than the fate of Western neighborhoods of Jerusalem and the fate of other Palestinian cities that were uh, totally conquered and subjugated and became Israeli uh, cities such as uh, Jaffa and Haifa. If we look more closer about the events in uh, Jerusalem, uh, we see that uh, indeed uh, there was a strong Palestinian resistance in uh, Jerusalem in uh, uh, the last months of uh, 1948. Um, and that uh, Palestinians in Jerusalem, uh, aided by uh, volunteers from the ALA, the Arab Liberation Army, uh, mainly uh, Iraqis and uh, also uh, Syrians and Lebanese, were able uh, to hold uh, their ground, especially uh, in the old city of Jerusalem, even for several days after the British uh, withdrawal from Jerusalem in uh, May 14, 1948. So they were able to hold their ground up until uh, May the 19th, 1948, and uh, even accomplish uh, military achievements uh, in the internal front within the old city of Jerusalem vis-a-vis the Jewish quarter, uh, the same historical quarter that I mentioned uh, within the old city of uh, Jerusalem. So I think that their resistance which is especially described uh, perhaps in the best way in the memoirs of Bahajat uh, Abu Rabia, who was known uh, until recent years, uh, he was still living in Jordan and was known as Sheikh uh, Al-Munadelin, the uh, elder, not elder statesman, but uh, actually uh, elder fighter or the eldest uh, fighter, uh, the eldest freedom fighter among the Palestinians. So these combined the Palestinian and the inter-Arab volunteer resistance have actually paved the way for what became later East Jerusalem under Jordanian rule state to remain a Palestinian Arab city, of course, between 1948 and 1967, and to a great extent, even to this day. Uh, as opposed to uh, the fate of uh, Palestinian Jaffa or Palestinian Haifa. Now, uh, I think that uh, the uh, holiness of Jerusalem, the fact that Jerusalem was a sacred city, also to Christianity, but mainly to Islam, uh, was a main factor in the resistance, uh, in the endurance that the uh, Palestinians and uh, also 
uh, other Arab volunteers uh, were able to uh, show in Jerusalem uh, that actually uh, paved the way and uh, helped uh, them to um, maintain the city that at the time was uh, under uh, attack by uh, the Jewish Haganah, the Jewish state militia from West Jerusalem. Uh, and they were able to hold uh, their position up until uh, the, of course, the reinforcement of uh, the uh, Arab Legion of uh, Transjordan that of course was also crucial uh, in the uh, persistence of uh, East Jerusalem as a Palestinian Arab city to this day. Um, terms of speaking in terms of society, uh, it is also uh, very interesting to mention. Of course, uh, you might say that uh, the neighborhoods in West Jerusalem were geographically surrounded or more closer to the main Jewish neighborhoods of West Jerusalem. But perhaps it is not a coincidence that uh, it was mainly the neighborhoods of the upper middle class, middle class of Jerusalem that uh, uh, collapsed earlier, both uh, socially and militarily while uh, the neighborhoods of uh, more conservative Jerusalem, especially the old city, were able to resist the attack to a larger period of time until indeed the Jordanian uh, legion was able to come and uh, might say, I wouldn't say exactly save the day because I just uh, claimed the contrary, but uh, of course it uh, had a very important role in uh, preserving the Arabness uh, of uh, Jerusalem. Now, the war ended, obviously, and Jerusalem was divided. And uh, that's another story. I want to ask you something about uh, the other side of your work, which is Jaffa. I never really talked about Jaffa in the podcast, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about the city, uh, particularly, again, the period of, uh, of the war. Uh, how, Jaffa, how did Jaffa experience the war? The Jaffa actually started the war uh, when it was uh, defined uh, by the UN partition resolution, unlike Jerusalem, as a part of uh, the uh, Arab state that should have been formed alongside the Jewish state. I mean, uh, the Arab state of uh, Palestine that uh, did not materialize to this day. Um, but Jaffa should have been an enclave. It was an enclave detached of any territorial contiguity. Um, it was actually surrounded by uh, Jewish Tel Aviv and uh, other towns uh, such as uh, Bakyam and Cholon. And it also had the um, Palestinian Arab hinterland, a village periphery, which was uh, perhaps, but it was a little detached of the city. So you had to go through a kind of uh, a belt of uh, Jewish uh, settlements and neighborhoods to get to this to, this, uh, to the uh, agricultural uh, periphery of Jaffa, of uh, Palestinian Arab Jaffa. Now, at the time that we are talking, um, Palestinian Arab Jaffa was officially, uh, officially contained a large Jewish population. There was, uh, according to the uh, official numbers, uh, 70,000 uh, Arabs and uh, 30,000 Jews but the Jews were living in neighborhoods which are now considered to be a part of Tel Aviv, even as a part of the unity uh, between Jaffa and Tel Aviv Jaffa, which has uh, today, uh, since 1949, actually the same municipality, but those areas are considered to be a part of Tel Aviv. And actually, even in the late 1940s, these neighborhoods 
received most of the municipal services already from the Tel Aviv um, municipality, and they became quite excluded uh, from uh, the sphere of influence of the Jaffa municipality. So at the time, actually, Jaffa became, for the first time in modern history, actually, an exclusively Palestinian Arab uh, town with a uh, smaller my, uh, populations of the uh, Greeks and the Armenians than in Jerusalem, for example. And it was uh, probably the largest uh, Palestinian Arab uh, town at the time with a population slightly larger than uh, Jerusalem and uh, even probably a little slightly larger than uh, and the population uh, of the Palestinian population of Haifa. And it was a cultural hub for the Palestinians. Uh, most of the Palestinian uh, newspapers appeared in Jaffa. Most of the cultural life, uh, cinemas, clubs, uh, and even uh, the beginning of the theater. Um, it was the hub, the cultural hub of uh, Palestine. It was known as the uh, uh, pride of the sea, but also the bride of Palestine. Economically, it had known actually shortages and the periods of the crisis uh, since 1936, uh, since the Palestinian Arab revolt, uh, because Jaffa was dependent on uh, the uh, import of uh, orange and the citrus projects uh, through the Jaffa Harbor. And uh, this was really decimated uh, during uh, the revolt that started with a six-month uh, uh, strike that included the, the Jaffa port, unlike the Haifa port, for example, that continued to uh, work during the strike. And uh, later on, it uh, also suffered from difficulties, not only during the revolt up until 1939, but in 1939, when the revolt entered uh, shortly afterwards, started the Second World War, where there were another problems of uh, import. And uh, indeed, in 1946, 1947, uh, Jaffa uh, was uh, in the process of uh, cooperation from uh, this prolonged uh, economical debacle. Now, uh, we have also to bear in mind that uh, as a result of uh, this Cyprus industry, also Jaffa being a uh, major commercial center of uh, Arab Palestine, uh, there were in Jaffa, we might say, uh, islands of uh, richness uh, and of uh, capital, compared to also uh, vast poverty neighborhoods of Jaffa. Uh, so the city, um, the town, uh, like other cities uh, in the developing world to this day, uh, was characterized by a major gap between uh, different segments of the population. And it was also a hub of uh, internal migration from the village areas of Palestine, and uh, even from some peripheral areas in uh, Syria, to uh, a certain extent also Lebanon, Jordan, and even Egypt, uh, of uh, migrants from other parts of uh, the Arab world. And um, Jaffa was known, uh, thanks to this uh, cultural diversity and cultural hybridity, Jaffa was known also as Um el-Gharib, the mother of the stranger. Uh, strangers, of course, were mostly Arabs, and um, 
most of them were Palestinians, but also uh, from other parts of uh, the near Middle East and even uh, farther. So Jaffa was very, very diverse, might say uh, also culturally hybrid uh, between East and West, uh, like I mentioned before, in West uh, uh, Arab Jerusalem, for example. And I think that it was uh, more fragile due to this uh, both economic hardship and also this uh, great diversity, these huge gaps between new internal migrants from villages, even internal migrants from the Quran area in South uh, West Syria, and uh, the established uh, local population that was established in Jaffa some since uh, the early 19th century, some even earlier. Uh, there were major gaps. Uh, the diversity also meant that in times of crisis, Jaffa was more vulnerable. And its geopolitical position uh, as a neighbor uh, to Tel Aviv, uh, very center of uh, the Jewish uh, Zionist uh, issue or settlement in Palestine, made it specifically uh, vulnerable. And to this, we may also lead the, the uh, political factor that while Jerusalem was politically the hub of uh, those Palestinians who were loyal to the Hosseini family or clan that actually led the Palestinian Arab national movement during the Mandic period, Jaffa was mainly led by members of the opposition to the Husseini faction or Husseini political party. So this estrangement, not only on social terms between one hand, the political leadership of the Husseinis were uh, notable vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, newer echelons of uh, middle class, but in Jaffa also, the political estrangement between the Husseinis and the opposition to the Husseinis also added to the vulnerability of uh, Jaffa. And uh, we see indeed that as soon as um, hostilities began in uh, December 1947, following the partition resolution, and then in uh, January 1948, uh, Jaffa was indeed in a very fragile situation. Uh, and if I talked before about collapse, I think that Jaffa was close to collapse already in January 1948. And then for a short while, due to uh, the tremendous efforts of local leaders, it was able to hold out for a while and it uh, received help from outside, from the Arab Liberation Army. But finally, when the Irgun, the Jewish opposition started its attack on Jaffa in late April 1948. And it actually collapsed very quickly. Here also, at first, the Jaffaite society collapsed at first, at first, in the lack of uh, uh, national or countrywide uh, leadership that it would have been able to identify with. And then shortly afterwards, also the uh, military uh, armed forces in Jaffa also collapsed. 
this was augmented also by the attack of the Haganah on the uh, village periphery of Jaffa, uh, even on the outskirts of Jaffa itself. And as a result, Jaffa was actually, Jaffa actually re remained empty of most of its inhabitants and of most of its uh, um, military forces, uh, fighters, and it just surrendered to the Jewish Haganah, the main pre-state militia, even a day before the British uh, final withdrawal from Palestine on May the uh, 13, 1948. At the time, only 3,000 Palestinian Arabs had stayed in Jaffa. And uh, as Salim Tamari defined it, uh, what happened was that Jaffa was degraded from the Bride of Palestine to be uh, the Hashishdem of Israel. I wanted to ask you something in relation to, um, let's say, approach to understanding Jaffa and Jerusalem. Now, in your book, but also in your writings and uh, other outlets, you often say, you talk about this uh, division, like Jerusalem is a city in the hills, which is sort of distant from uh, the, the, the other centers of power, whereas Jaffa as a coastal city was much more connected to other centers. And I was wondering if this uh, sort of... Uh, Different geographical location also played a role in the war itself and uh, in the future of, of the cities, you know, one uh, essentially divided and one that became part of, of the newly created state of Israel. So I actually borrowed uh, these terms, uh, mountain city uh, versus coastal city from uh, luminaries, uh, beginning uh, in the Mediterranean term, uh, luminaries such as uh, Fernand Brodel, and uh, in Middle Eastern history, uh, Albert Khurani. Uh, I think that originally it was applied uh, more to the difference between cities such as Beirut and Damascus, uh, Beirut the more cosmopolitan, Damascus uh, more with a uh, traditional, cohesive uh, national Arab city. And I think that it was to a large extent also the same uh, between Jaffa and Jerusalem, with, of course, the extent of what happened in uh, neighborhoods in West Jerusalem, which were also cosmopolitan, such as Katamon. Uh, uh, all in all, we see that, uh, um, of course, you might say that uh, it was all uh, geopolitical factors. Uh, Jaffa being uh, surrounded by Tel Aviv and uh, other uh, Jewish uh, cities and towns, uh, while Jerusalem uh, had uh, been uh, surrounded by um, the Palestinian uh, Arab uh, periphery and uh, the Jews were actually uh, an enclave uh, in Jerusalem. Um, however, if we tend to look more closer, we see that uh, Jews also were a demographical majority uh, within Jerusalem itself uh, in 1948. Uh, and still, they were not able to uh, translate the uh, uh, demographical uh, majority uh, into an overwhelming uh, military uh, victory, such as uh, in uh, Jaffa. Uh, and I think that if we look upon the different uh, behavior of two cities, uh, we see that uh, Jerusalem, especially all Jerusalem, um, 
or its eastern parts, uh, uh, more traditional uh, parts, uh, also uh, reinforced, uh, especially uh, during the mandate, but even in late Ottoman times, by internal migration from Hebron. Uh, today, uh, most uh, Palestinian uh, Jerusalemites are uh, consisting of uh, descendants of internal migrants uh, from Hebron. And the Hebronites were uh, actually a more cohesive element in the history of uh, Palestinian Jerusalem. Uh, as opposed to Palestinian uh, original Jerusalemites, which were uh, tend to be more, uh, we might say, um, I wouldn't use the word cosmopolitan, of course. <laughs> it has a very uh, a negative uh, historical implications. Remember that the Jews were nicknamed cosmopolitan. But perhaps uh, we might say culturally more uh, open to hybrid culture. A hybrid, uh, cultural hybridity uh, between East and West made people actually, uh, ironically, be more civil. The creation of the civil society that is less, less nationalistic and more prone to, uh, to good life, to, to peaceful existence, and uh, less, uh, uh, less uh, in favor of uh, military confrontation or military resistance, even. So I think that uh, those uh, differences between uh, Jaffa, uh, city with uh, more um, developed cultural life, or center of a cinema houses in the uh, Arab Palestine uh, before 1948, the center of culture, uh, the site of a, um, such cultural and social modernity that uh, in a way, in a way, uh, is, uh, has, is not even demonstrated even today in the entire of uh, uh, Arab Palestine. Um, I think that, uh, yes, it made perhaps uh, Jaffa and Jaffaites, uh, and I think that it's very uh, human and uh, very uh, uh, natural uh, phenomenon that uh, people would actually prefer more peaceful life rather than military uh, resistance, the military uh, confrontation. And uh, the more people become uh, uh, more interested in uh, uh, cultural activities, in uh, hybridity, uh, in diverse uh, values, uh, they would become perhaps less cohesive and uh, less. Uh, um, so of course, we have to take also in mind the uh, religious uh, difference uh, in Jaffa. Uh, of course, uh, there are mosques and churches, but uh, Jaffa is not a sacred city. It has no uh, ancient uh, sacred sites, uh, uh, well, with the exception of some uh, Christian sites, but of course it doesn't have the uh, uh, crucial importance of uh, Jerusalem as a religious center, which would actually uh, encourage people to sacrifice their lives in order to preserve and keep the uh, religious uh, places uh, as such as um, is happening to this day, actually, when Jerusalem is still the core of the conflict uh, between Palestinians and Israelis to this day, uh, and not only in national or nationalistic terms, but also in religious terms. Well, indeed, today, if we look at uh, the question of uh, uh, the sort of Temple Mount, of the uh, Arama Sharif,
and so we, we can see how just that small area is highly contested and certainly the very heart of, of the conflict. Now, I have a couple of questions left very much about your current and future projects. So I was wondering if you can tell us what you've been working on right now and perhaps if you can give us a hint of your coming and future works. Well, I'm uh, in the finalizing uh, stages of uh, research uh, on uh, the planning. Uh, again, actually, as a project of, uh, um, on the planning of uh, the Zionist leadership uh, towards the future of uh, uh, the uh, Palestinian Arab citizens uh, who were supposed to uh, be living in the Jewish state according to the uh, partition resolution in 1947. And it emerged into a kind of a project uh, um, regarding also uh, some of the views of this leadership uh, towards uh, uh, the future possible existence of uh, Palestinian Arabs uh, in the future uh, Jewish uh, state or political entity, uh, even in earlier uh, stages. And uh, unlike my uh, previous research, it is a research concentrated uh, mostly uh, almost, uh, almost exclusively on uh, the Jewish political side. And uh, it is a study of uh, political and uh, um, cultural or political cultural, uh, political intellectual history, uh, very uh, quite unlike uh, some of the studies that I uh, conducted in the past. Uh, perhaps it is a little bit uh, reminiscent of uh, um, some of the studies that I conducted on the Katamon neighborhood, uh, especially on the Sakakini household and the Khalil uh, Sakakini uh, as an embodiment of uh, the uh, emerging uh, Palestinian uh, Arab middle class under the mandate. Um, and this brings me to uh, the next project uh, that I'm uh, uh, planning uh, or starting to plan on these days, uh, which I think would uh, center around uh, Sakakini and his diaries. I think that Sakakini uh, was indeed uh, an extraordinary person, extraordinary writer. I think that his diaries, which were published in full in Arabic uh, only in the 21st century, uh, are unique. They are a unique source of Palestinian. Um, cultural history, social history, to a certain extent, sometimes even political history. And they were not yet uh, delved in fully. Um, indeed, in recent years, there was published only in Hebrew so far, uh, an educational biography of Sakkini uh, by uh, Kamal Moed, uh, who is a Palestinian Arab citizen of Israel. Uh, hence, it was published in uh, Hebrew. And uh, Kamal is a, a scholar of uh, education. And uh, I had the honor to be a scientific historical editor of uh, this publication. And uh, I hold uh, Kamal's work uh, in the highest esteem. Uh, yet, I think that uh, uh, Sakakini should also be studied on a broader term. Uh, than his educational creed, which is fascinating. I think that Sakakini should be studied as a kind of an embodiment, perhaps, 
not only of the Palestinian Arab middle class, but perhaps even of the Palestinian Arab generation of the mandate period. I think that this would be uh, my next uh, project because I've been actually dreaming of uh, conducting a research uh, in this uh, field for several years now, and I hope that uh, upon finalizing uh, the current project, I will be able to move smoothly into this uh, next uh, project about the Kakini and his generation. This was Itamar Adai, senior lecturer in Israel studies at the Open University of Israel and author of Palestinians in Jerusalem in Jaffa, 1948, A Tale of Two Cities, published by Routledge in 2016. Itamar, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Roberto. It has been my pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com